We're going under the hood with Dr. Sunshine, where we explore topics that are relevant to STEM professionals with intersecting identities. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone. We're going back under the hood, and today we have a special guest, uh, Mitch Boritz. So once again, Under the Hood is a brand new space for aspiring current or retired STEM students and professionals. This is also a space for friends and family of STEM people where you can hear firsthand accounts about the behind the scenes experiences of those who have dedicated their lives to careers in STEM. And so I am super excited today to talk with uh, the first guest of Under the Hood once again. Mitch Boritz. Hi, Mitch. Oh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I'll tell you all a little bit about Mitch. So Mitch is formerly the technical communication specialist for the Borens College of Engineering at the University of California, Riverside. And so in that role, he helped faculty and researchers to identify funding opportunities, develop uh, pursuit plans, submit proposals. And so in his prime, he helped to generate about $50 million a year in grants and contract awards for UC Riverside. And so I'm incredibly grateful to have Mitch uh, here to talk candidly about grant writing. And of course, we're going to go under the hood to talk about things that maybe are not otherwise talked about um, when it comes to becoming a good grant writer. So welcome, Mitch. Thank you. This will be fun. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you that um, may know myself and Mitch personally, we know that Mitch is a straight shooter, uh, very organized, and is really great at mentoring young PIs when it comes to writing grants, finding opportunities, and developing our voice as independent PIs. So we're hoping to pull some of that information into this conversation today. And so stay tuned for more at the end of the, uh, toward the end of the episode. So the first thing um, I'm gonna ask <laughs> Mitch to talk about uh, is something that I find quite interesting. It's uh, so you have a saying that I've heard in some of your uh, informational sessions at UCR. Uh, the advice is there's the drill and there's the hole. Sell the hole. So can you explain to us what that means? Sure. What I mean by that is if, you know, I mean, we bought a house a long time ago and ended up going down to the hardware store and buying a drill, not because I needed a drill, not because I wanted a drill, but because I needed to make holes. And that's how the grants world works too. These funding agencies aren't necessarily interested in you or in your lab or in your institution. They're interested in satisfying a need for the most part. And that need is expressed in the solicitation and your proposal needs to address the need. You are the drill. They want a hole. So you need to explain why you're the best the drill out there that'll make just exactly the hole they need in a new and clever and efficient and cost-effective way. So I think that's just an easy kind of shorthand to think about it. Um, certainly the most, I won't say the most common problem, but a, a very common 
fault in proposals is to write more about yourself than about them. You're writing always, writing about the person who's holding the checkbook. Um, so know what's important to them and write about what's important to them and you'll be ahead of the pack. Hmm. And so just as a follow-up question, would you say that developing the skill to contort or fit a your research to the mission of that agency, is that a skill that's developed over time? Well, it's certainly going to develop over time, but I don't think there's anything stopping someone from doing it the first time out. Uh, if you're writing, and I'm, it's called under the hood, so we can get like right down into the weeds. If you're writing to the National Science Foundation, you want to talk about the basic science or the basic engineering. You could write the same proposal to the National Institutes of Health which where you would subordinate the basic part of it and emphasize the biomedical significance, innovation, and so on. So it's, again, a matter of understanding who's the audience, what's important to that audience, you know, what's going to make them say yes or no, and just stay laser focused on that. So yeah, over time, you're going to develop that. Probably when you write your first USDA proposal, it's just going to feel a little foreign and uncertain. And by your fourth USDA proposal, you'll know <laughs> without even thinking about it, what's the difference between a USDA proposal and an NSF proposal. So yeah, I do think it develops over time, but it's something you can really come out of the shoot doing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And that was a great segue into the different agencies, which brings me to my next question. So in the, in the grants world, um, there are funding opportunities from various different sponsors. And um, from some of, the, some of the things I've learned from you uh, are that those opportunities can come from federal, state, private, and foundation type sources. And so in your experience, um, which research areas are most likely to be funded by those specific types of sponsors? Okay, so the, at the federal level, which is where most of the money is, frankly, for most, I think most people watching this, this podcast, the roles are defined by Congress and the budgets, of course, come from Congress and even the priorities year to year or years to years come from Congress in the, in the broadest sense of the term. So you do have to pay attention to what the mission is. NSF is a basic science agency. They fund science because it is a good thing to fund science and because you don't know what's over the next hill until you go over the next hill. Um, NIH, I would say, is more in that mold too. I mean, yes, they have a health mission, but they go lots of different directions. You know, I honestly believe every computer science professor in the country ought to be knocking on NIH's door these days. Then you get into the mission agencies, though. And the mission agencies support science because they need that hole, and science is the drill. And you might be surprised at how far some of these agencies go. I'm, the classic example for me is the U.S. Department of Ag. Um, they, in 2017, made two grants to a small city in rural Pennsylvania to renovate its movie theater. And you say, okay, why is USDA renovating movie theaters in Berwick, Pennsylvania? 
And the answer is part of USDA's mission is a robust agricultural economy and robust agricultural communities. The thinking being, if there's not a good movie theater in Berwick, Pennsylvania, people are gonna move out of Berwick, Pennsylvania, and then who's gonna grow all the potatoes in Berwick County? So they did it, you know, this, I mean, it's right there in their charter in USDA's mission statement. And that's what you have to look at. Um, US Air Force does all this biomedical stuff um, because they have a human performance division. So you really have to look carefully at what it is they're funding and why they're funding it. And going back to your previous question, then how do I spin it? How do I make this idea that I already pitched to NIH um, and make it about human performance for US Air Force? Or you know, if I'm doing sociological studies, um, maybe you can pitch that to USDA because it's about robust agricultural communities. So you again, you have to look at the mission and it's usually right there in the solicitation. You know, there's enough, enough of a breadcrumb trail that you can go back and figure it out. And again, just write about what it is they're trying to accomplish. Now that didn't really answer your question. Where do I see the money coming? But that's a hard question to answer. I think the shortest, the most accurate way to answer that would be you have to look at the agency. You have to look at that agency's mission as defined by Congress, as defined by its program people. You have to look at what's hot right now. I mean, would anyone have gotten SARS COVID funding in 2017? No. Um, now you, there's tons of money in that arena. So you just have to pay attention to what's going on and what they're funding and tailor your, I mean, you're not really going to change what you're proposing. You're just going to change how you're proposing it. Okay, so that, that gives hope to PIs that are in obscure fields that there is perhaps funding for everyone at some point. Yeah, and in fact, I'm, forgive me for interrupting you, but going back to what I said a minute ago, I mean, I have seen, you, you know, you can't submit the same, well, you can submit the same proposal two places simultaneously, but you can't get funded by both simultaneously. But I have seen, for example, a biologist and a computer scientist submit a proposal to the computer science directorate at NSF with the computer scientist as the lead PI and the biologist as co-PI, and then turn around and kind of rewrite it, change the order of the PIs and submit that, not necessarily to NSF, but maybe to NIH or to USDA or somewhere else. Again, what's the, the sponsor's priority? I mean, it's under the hood, it's the same science. That's brilliant. And that disrupted the flow of things, but sorry, I did that. No, no. I, I think that people will really find that this advice is helpful. Um, just um, so for a little bit of background for um, my new audience, I am a fourth year assistant professor and I grew up with Mitch at UC Riverside. And so um, I've found that most of your advice has been super helpful over the years. So well, that's good. And you know how hard it is to get started, but once, once the pump is primed, you'll do okay. <laughs> yep, and we're going to talk about that. And so um, just to round out this first part of the podcast, can you talk to us about some of the your go-to open source websites for grant opportunities? And I will link those websites in the description. 
Yes, I sent you a list, which you're free to share, of mostly federal sites. The big one is grants.gov. And right there on the grants.gov homepage, you can subscribe to a daily feed. It's way more chaff than wheat, but the wheat is in there. And it only takes a couple of minutes a day to look at the list. And you know, if you see something where the keywords seem to match up, click on it and you know, then read the paragraph. And if the paragraph makes sense, then read the solicitation. But the individual agencies also have their own sites um, within the federal government. In theory, that should be 100% redundant with grants.gov. Um, sometimes there's a couple days delay one way or the other. You, know, you might see it on grants.gov before the agency site, or you might see it on the agency site before grants.gov. You might see some additional context. You might see invitations to bidders conferences and things like that. There's another site, a federal site called FedBizOps, FBO. That is not an excellent spot for academics. And I actually don't recommend it to most PIs because that's where the government hires janitorial services for the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, everything, and those are mostly contracts and mostly services, but you will see some research opportunities in there from time to time. DARPA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And that's because some of these agencies support research through mechanisms other than grants, through cooperative agreements or other transactions or contracts. So they won't necessarily appear on grants.gov. But grants.gov is a really good net for doing that. Um, for those in California too, uh, State of California has a weekly feed of grant opportunities. Again, it's free. I don't know if it's in that list I sent you, but there is one if you just do California grants, Google California grants, you can sign up for a weekly uh, list of those. Um, so those are the major ones. If your institution subscribes to a service, um, a lot of them are very, very good. For example, Riverside subscribes to uh, Pivot, which is an excellent tool. There are some in the UC system and some at other places that specialize on, for example, postdoctoral or fellowships, travel stipends, you know, things for grad, graduate and postdoctoral researchers. Um, so they turn up some great stuff, federal and non-federal, and even international. But yeah, the first place to go is grants.gov. That's going to catch most of what you need. Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Um, really, that question was added in mind for people that are at smaller schools that don't have an awesome team of pre-award coordinators to triage and look for us, but um, those are great resources. And so- I just will say, I'm sorry, before we move on, like the NSF, they have what's called the custom news service. And you can actually enter keywords, types of solicitations or announcements you're interested in and so on. So they are very, very tailorable. And that can help, again, these people who don't have a lot of people kind of scouting the horizon for them, uh, maybe a bit more, be a bit more efficient with their time in zeroing in on opportunities. And so that was the NSF? Yeah, it's called the Custom News Service, I think. It was called the Custom News Service when I subscribed to it 25 years ago. I don't, maybe its <laughs> name has changed, but the, the link is there. It's on that, on that list. Well, that's awesome. Great, that's awesome uh, information. And so guys, please sit, uh, submit a comment if you have uh, follow-up questions about anything that Mitch talked about regarding where to find your grant opportunities. And so the next couple of questions I wanted to ask 
um, are pertaining to new principal investigators. And so for my postdocs and grad students, principal investigator is essentially the designation given to people that are allowed to lead a grant submission or be the lead person on a grant submission. Mitch, you can, <laughs> very good. So uh, transitioning to principal investigator, I feel is a major learning curve milestone in one's academic career. So I just wanna talk about that for a couple of minutes. And so my first question is, what is the absolute first piece of advice that you give to new PIs when they're starting out writing grants? Okay. Yeah, it's not, you're, first of all, I'd say you're not starting out quite as flat-footed as you might think, because when you got your degree, you were in a research lab, and that research lab was funded some way or another. Right? Where did that money come from? And how were your contacts with the sponsoring agency? You know, did you just do reports? Did you do meetings? So you kind of understand more than you, you might realize already, just having been through the graduate research process. The big thing when you're on your own is, you know, whether you are just receiving the daily feed from grants.gov or you have someone in your institution's grants office who's disseminating opportunities. When you see something that looks or smells right, download the solicitation, read it, and then read it again, and be sure you really understand it. And a solicitation could be as little as 15 pages, it could be as much as 200. And you can't just stop reading after the first five pages of technical. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that might affect your competitiveness. And you know, it might tell you on page 94 that there's an incumbent. So why bother if there's an incumbent if, if they're happy with the incumbent? So there can be lots of things to consider. But let's say you get it and you've looked at that agency and sure enough, you know, you a friend of a friend is the program officer. So you can call them up and have, feel pretty good that they'll call back if you have questions. And it's looking like, yeah, I could compete for this. What I would tell people, what I did tell people is that writing a proposal is not like writing a paper or a case statement or something like that. I mean, you've all written scientific abstracts, you've all written scientific papers already, you've written dissertations, and there's a certain style and a certain flow, and that, you, I'm surprised still at how many proposals are written in that same structure, because it's wrong. When you're writing to persuade, you need a different approach, and uh, there's a wonderful book, it's called um, the Language of Success by Tom Sant, S-A-N-T, costs about 10 bucks, it's about 200 pages, you can knock it off in a weekend. And really, I had been a professional writer for what, 15 years before this book came out, and it changed the way I write. Um, Tom did a, a, a brilliant job in this book. What it comes down to is you need to make sure they, you need to convince them you understand what they need, you need to understand you need, first of all, you understand the need. Second, you promise an outcome. Give me this money, trust my approach, here's how it's gonna end. Um, then you go into the details of the solution, S for solution, um, how I'm gonna do it. And E is evidence, evidence that I really can do this. I have the resources, I know what I'm talking about, I've done it before, or 
and establish the feasibility. So that comes out to nose, need outcome solution evidence. That's a very, very good section of Tom's book and definitely worth reading. And one thing I've actually, I've grad students don't believe me when I tell them this, but I, we did a lot of workshops for grad students applying for the NSF Grad Research Fellowship. And I said, just as an exercise, see how it feels. Blank page, first three words, I want it to, I want you to write, this project will. It's so different from how an academic writes something academic, but start with those three words and see what comes next and see how that feels. Because if that feels right, and if you can make that work, then this poor reviewer who's reading 12 or 15 or 20 proposals is going to read a paragraph of background and a paragraph of this, and maybe the last paragraph on the first page, if you're lucky, says what you actually propose to do and why it's going to work. Whereas you've told them in the first sentence, if you can get them nodding their head in the first sentence, um, they're going to like you a lot better. They're going to read your proposal faster. They're going to put it in the yes pile, or at least the read more thoroughly pile, as opposed to the no pile. So yeah, that's one bit of advice, I think. Now, I'm not saying for abstracts, I'm not saying for your dissertation, but I am saying for proposals. Just try it. Start with these three words, this project will, and see where that goes. Because usually it goes pretty well. I can't remember, did that? Did, did I ever get you twist your arm hard enough to do that? <laughs> I do believe I went through the transition from paper writing to just getting straight to the point. I'm also going to credit Philip Brisk for he's Philip Brisk is a professor of uh, computer science at UC Riverside. He also drove that home. Just get to the point in the first paragraph. <laughs> yeah, I remember a former professor of mechanical engineering who he was so funny because he wrote like three proposals in a row and then sat down to write a paper. And he said, oh my God, everything I wrote was so over the top for this paper. I really had to like get back down to that serious, sober, academic, <laughs> just the facts thing. Um, so yeah, you've got to put on a different hat to write a proposal. Wonderful, this is great. This is great. I think the bit about this proposal will, will also help our grad student listeners as well. Not this proposal will, this project will. This project will. <laughs> the proposal's only purpose is to win money. The project's purpose is to sa satisfy the need. See guys, you never, you never stop being coached. And Sorry, I always, I'm just no. kick at people, you know that. <laughs> oh yes, I always tell my mentees, you have to be coachable at every stage of your career. That's how you become, that's how you, that's how you maintain success. And so uh, I think we can transition into discussing challenges okay so perhaps what do you see are some of the challenges that new pis have with transitioning from carrying out someone else's research wishes to leading and conceptualizing their own projects and becoming and developing their voice right yeah that goes back if you were to use tom's paradigm that goes back to the e to the evidence how do they know they can trust you enough to invest in you um, because you haven't done this before, or maybe you haven't done this much before. And there's a few ways. One, and I think this was the path you took, was you started off, you know, your first one or two grants were quite small, I think, um, just proving that you can 
you can get out there. You can stand in the current and and do this stuff. And so that gave confidence. I mean, first of all, it's you know having I think you have foundation money and having that foundation invest in you looks good, and it gives uh, an agency confidence that you can you can do the job. You see a lot of assistant professors either stand up in front and have a really good experience co-PI. And that's not my former mentor, that's one of my, my new colleagues, because now I'm at that level. Just someone who you know will just be a steady hand, maybe behind the scenes. Uh, gosh, what are some of the others? Um, there are, I don't want to say back doors, but there are mechanisms for smaller grants and introductory grants and proof of concept grants. NIH has the R03 and R21 grants, which are proof of concept. They're, NIH calls them small. They can be up to $275,000, which is not that small for direct costs. And I don't want to say they're reviewed less rigorously, but NIH considers that kind of mad money, you know, gambling money. Um, it's, since it's proof of concept, we don't have to be quite as convinced it's going to work. And of course, we're not going to invest those millions until this is done. And there is reason to believe it will work. Uh, NSF has mechanisms like EAGER, and I don't remember what EAGER stands for. But um, if you submit a proposal to NSF on your own or as part of a team and it's declined, look at the reasons it was declined. And if it comes down to one reviewer being skeptical about one aspect of the project, you can go back to the program officer and say, you know what, give me an eager grant. I will prove that I'm right and that reviewer is wrong. $90,000 maybe in one year. And then you come back after that year and say, see, I was right, the reviewer is wrong. Here's the proposal again. This time I want, <laughs> I want in. So what I'd say is don't, you know, you're not gonna be the, the PI of a 10-year center grant while you're still an assistant professor. That doesn't mean you have to sit in the shallow end of the pool all that long. You just have to do whatever it takes to establish yourself. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to be part of a big center, great, that's gonna build this halo around you, whether you deserved it or not, but run with that. And if you're not quite that fortunate, then yeah, be a co-PI on something and then switch it around next time. So you're the PI and the senior person is the co-PI. And the one after that, be on your own. And the one after that, it's probably okay to go back to your mentor because you've got enough distance between you and, and your thesis advisor, your uh, dissertation advisor now, and you can do fun stuff with them again. That was great. Yeah. The... I, I guess one other thing too, I keep interrupting you and I'm sorry about that, but one other thing occurred to me, and that is that the Army, Navy, and Air Force have what are called BAAs, Broad Agency Announcements. Um, they don't come out on grants.gov because they're not actually solicitations. They are almost like shopping lists of technology we wish we had. And they stay open for years. Like the last Army one came out in 2017 and stays open until 2022. And like I said, it's just stuff we wish we had. And I do tell assistant professors, look at that. And if you see something in there where you've got a novel idea, call up that program officer. And that's how it works. And you, you 
initiate this by emailing the program officer, and then you're going to have a conversation on the phone. And then you're going to write one page. And if they're still interested, then you're going to write three pages. And if they're still interested, then you're going to write a proposal. And the nice thing is you're not competing against 10,000 other people. It's you and the program officer and the program officer's budget. And inevitably, the program officer will say, hey, that sounds great. Wish I had the money. But next year, the program officer will have money because some project will have ended or someone will have gone on sabbatical and there's going to be money in that account. And then they'll call you back and say, OK, let's go do that. So that's another way to get started. And those, even if they start small, um, they can grow. You keep amending it and suddenly you realize you're sitting on something pretty big. Well, thank you. I do have a follow up question that I hadn't thought about. So when you're approaching a program officer, of course, they're going to consider the technical merit of your work. But what I'm thinking of, what, the question that comes to mind is, does your affiliation matter? Does, does your place of research really matter? And can you talk about that? I would say there's going to be a halo effect from a, an established and well-known institution. There sometimes are eligibility issues connected to your institution. For example, a minority serving institution might be eligible for either certain programs that others are not, or might be eligible for special consideration. If you were in what's called an EPSCOR state, I don't remember how many states there are, I don't remember what EPSCOR stands for, but these are states that get below average federal uh, grant funding overall. They get less from the federal government than other states. There are F-score programs. So uh, there are HBCU programs. There are predominantly undergraduate institution programs. So I'd say being a, U, like being a UC, even UC Riverside, which is not one of the elite UC campuses, not regarded as one of the elite UC campuses, of course we are. Um, just having that UC name, yes, will mean something. Uh, being at Berkeley probably means more than being at Riverside, just again, because of the name. Being at a big football school probably means more than it should, um, but it does mean you're at a big university and that big university has accounting programs that meet federal requirements and ethics programs that meet federal requirements and so on. So that's all good too. So if you're at, a lesser known institution or at an undergrad institution, it's probably gonna be harder to navigate your own institution's process because there are just fewer people doing it. And it might be a little harder to get the government's confidence that you can make it go. Uh, actually, there's an example from UC Riverside where we did a proposal with the Riverside Unified School District to the NSF. And it literally took a year for NSF and Riverside Unified to agree on the terms because Riverside Unified didn't have a federally approved accounting system and didn't have a few of the other things that are mandatory for every NSF grant. Now, your university, my university, most of the people on this call, their universities have those things. They just know it's automatic. You do business with NSF, you have these. Riverside Unified didn't know that because they don't do business with NSF. So there can be some hiccups between that moment when they say yes and that moment when you get the award, but that's after the fact. That's after they've already fallen in love with you. Um, getting them to fall in love with you 
I will say, yeah, I mean, it's probably easier for someone to fall in love with a professor at Berkeley than the professor at Riverside, than with a professor at Riverside Community College, than with a professor at Azusa Pacific. But uh, they're all out there. It's, you know, have a good enough idea, make it irresistible. Absolutely. We, all, we always try to bring it back to a hopeful notion. And sometimes what I have to tell my students, it's not where you are, it's who you are. Sometimes that can, you know, so I always try to tell them to bring your MIT heart to wherever you are, right? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Who's better than me? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> right. So just you know, try to build a boundary around you and shoot for the stars. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the last thing I want to ask about for new PIs is how much time should new PIs be allotting to their first grants to get them done? Yeah, short answer is twice as much as you think. Um, and you know that it's everything just takes twice as long as you think. And especially if you're an assistant professor, you've got 500 other things coming at you all the time. I'd say that, you know, there is no solid answer to that. One thing we're seeing, especially with NSF and to a limited degree with other agencies is windows rather than hard deadlines, which means like NSF is beginning to accept proposals year round and many, many, many of its programs. And so there's two ways to approach that. One is set yourself a deadline. I am going to have this proposal done before August 12th because classes begin on August 15th and I'm going to do it no matter what. The other is, well, I'll just keep working on it and when it's done, it's done. And frankly, most people take that second approach and you realize that a year has gone by without them submitting any proposals because they just keep polishing that one. Um, when there's no deadline, there's nothing breathing down my neck forcing me to get this done. So I'd say impose a deadline on yourself, make it realistic. Frankly, if you feel like it's not good enough to win on that date, give yourself a one week extension, but don't just keep dragging it out forever. Now, I'd say if there is, okay, another example is NIH, many of its programs are accepted three times a year. So if you decide on August 9th that you wanna do the September 9th deadline, you're probably wasting your time. So say, okay, let's look at February instead of September and let's make a plan for getting done in time for that February deadline. You know, I tell, I lived my whole academic life in the College of Engineering and I say, you people are engineers, you know how to do this stuff. So engineer your proposal. And I realize not everyone listening to this podcast is an engineer, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Make a plan, make a schedule, stay on that schedule and be take it seriously. And the writing, you know, some people love to write, some people hate to write. In science and engineering, the majority of the PIs out there are not even native English speakers. So I realize how hard it is for them to write. And you want to build in time for someone like me, a really mean editor, to rip it up one side and down the other and help you put it back together again because that's part of it too. And you're not gonna win or lose on your eloquence. Well, you could lose on your eloquence. Um, you're not gonna win on your eloquence. 
but an eloquent proposal, one that really flows, one that's been reviewed, you know, one where you're not just slamming that first draft in five minutes before the deadline is going to have a much better chance. I'd say the professors out there, you know who in your class pulled an all-nighter before the assignment was due, and you know who in your class worked on it for three weeks. It's just obvious. And the same is true of proposals. They're going to know they're going to know who really wants to win this, you know, who put in the time. Absolutely. I'm having some flashbacks to being a student myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having some guilty, guilty, guilty as charged. Well, it's not an <laughs> accusation. It's how people work. Absolutely. But, I mean, really, you, you know, and they know too. Yeah. You're, not, you're not fooling anybody. Absolutely. So um, I hope that our new PIs listening got uh, quite a bit from that segment. And we're going to transition to uh, going a little bit further under the hood. And we're going to discuss some things that I think can help people. But it's not necessarily something that you think about or you could anticipate because there are just nuances to submitting grants through an institution like and a university, there's just nuance. And so uh, we've got the right person to talk to about this. So submission your experience, what are the top three reasons why grants don't get funded? Okay, number one, and the easiest way for them to say no to you is administrative. The proposal was not responsive. You didn't fill in this form, you didn't submit it on time, you didn't do something. And therefore, it never even gets to peer review. And someone like me kicks it out, and that reduces everyone else's workload. I mean, and probably maybe 5% of proposals out there, maybe more, never even make it to the reviewer. Um, just declared non-responsive and get kicked out. Number two, of course, is money, because there's, I'll put it, I always say, you know, if you think about an NSF program that gets 100 proposals. How many of those proposals are genuinely a stupid idea? One, two, right? I mean, these are smart people who know what they're talking about. Maybe they haven't expressed it very well, but they're not stupid ideas. In some respects, they're probably almost all fundable. And yet NSF, or pretty much any agency, has enough money to fund 10, maybe 15%, on a really good day, 20%. So 80 of those 99 viable ones aren't going to get it. And so the third thing is maybe me turning it around on you. What I'd say is when you've finished a draft or when you think you're done, when you've asked your office mate to read it, or your friend up the hall to read it, or your former advisor to read it, or whoever you trust, or someone like me, ask yourself and ask them, if you were a reviewer, what would be your reason for saying no to this? Because they have to say no to 85, maybe 90% of them. So what's going to be the reason for saying no to this? Where are the weaknesses? And the only thing after that, you asked for three, here's number four, is you get down into the, the weeds of it, and you will get someone who simply does not believe in your approach. Um, some poor guy at UCR, Department of Energy, his program, there are 
two big schools of thought for how these electrons move this way or that way. And the program officer believes one thing and he believes the other, and he's just not going to get money until that program officer moves on. So there's that too. Um, gen I mean, honest differences of opinion as scientists. And you know, that happens. You submit papers, that happens. Um, that just has to be finessed over time. So you asked three, that was four. Sorry. Oh, we got a bonus. Missed, missed my target by 30%. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think those were great um, because really, I think what I hear from most people or most of my colleagues is that, oh, they just didn't get my ideas. They just, they just didn't get it. When really, I think you missed this form <laughs> or something like that or. Okay, and it, it's not untrue that they just didn't get it. Um, honestly, if you had, if you could prove cold fusion but you didn't fill form 322 correctly, I think they'd overlook form 322 to get cold fusion. Um, but if they didn't get it, you, yeah, you can blame them, but you also have to blame yourself. Did you do everything you could have done so they would get it? One thing I tell PIs is you're writing this proposal because you are the expert, you are the best person for this thing that you're proposing. And by definition, that means your peer reviewers are, don't get it to the extent that you get it. So make sure it's clear to someone who's not the expert, who's not you. Make sure they, they can follow your logic and are on board with you. And unfortunately, that's always been my weakness, is I don't speak your language. You know, I'm a terrific editor, but I'm not an engineer. And even if I were an engineer, if I were an electrical engineer, how could I help a chemical engineer? really. I mean, you're up at such a level that not all that many people are going to understand what you're talking about. And so you really have to make that effort to make it clear. And one thing you could do, I mean, I suggest this a lot, is find, especially if they have, if the RFP has uh, review criteria, you know, 10 points for this, 15 points for this, those keywords, use those words and boldface them in your proposal. So when that tired reviewer is filling out the rubric and wants, you know, okay, qualifications of the people. Well, if you boldface qualifications on page 19, it's just gonna help them out much quicker. They already feel good about you and it's just gonna make them a little easier to fill out the rubric and get you to yes. And that person who didn't boldface qualifications maybe falls below you. And sorry for that person. They should have watched your podcast. Um, but meanwhile, you got your money. Hey. <laughs> hey, guys. When I, tell you, <laughs> when I tell you Mitch is the best, he's the best. You know, good, direct, unequivocal advice is, I think, is the best type of advice. So thank you, Mitch. Of course. So, so, and then I'm gonna flip it and I'm gonna ask, what is it about proposals that make the winning, what is it about the winning proposals that makes them super shiny and stand out to the reviewers? Directness, responsiveness, they know what they're talking about, they're organized, 
they're clean, they're clear. Um, I've had this conversation where I said, you know, I've seen people kill themselves to get a manuscript right before they submit it. And then that same person will do the all-nighter before the proposal is due and send you a first draft. I have time to spell check it um, and off it goes. It's like, no, you know, and I get it that, you know, they, and they explained to me, well, well you know, proposal is just a proposal and that paper is going to live forever with your name on it. But, okay, I get that, but still, you're not going to write the paper if you don't get the money and you don't get the money if you don't do a good proposal. So I'd say treat it with the same respect. Um, the PIs who really take their time, who go in with a strong outline and a plan, come out with better proposals and more fundable proposals. Then, you know, I mean, you see some who sit down and start writing and when they get to page 15, they figure they must be done. And you see some people say, okay, this section, I can get nine points off this section and I'm allowed 25 pages total. So 9% of 25 is maybe two pages for this section. Really, that's how it ought to be. If you kill on section one and shortchange sections two, three, four, and five, you're not going to get it. So you have to be really disciplined. And that discipline will shine through when they're reading it. Easy to read, easy to score. And again, you all are, those of you who are professors, same thing. You read papers from students and it's clear they followed the instructions and knew what they were doing, and you read stuff where Oh yeah, three hours after they submitted, they finally read the instructions. <laughs> and you will respond viscerally differently to those two uh, homework assignments or whatever they are. So the reviewers are the same way. Absolutely. I don't know what it is about sitting down to write a proposal and all of our, all of that just goes out of the window, <laughs> um, but you said your engineers, your scientists, you know how to approach complicated projects, and a proposal is just another complicated project. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationships, the work collaborations that make this thing work. So um, I'm going to introduce uh, the term grant facilitator. So can you tell us what a grant facilitator is? And can you tell us about the importance of a PI's relationships with the grant facilitators? Okay, so that's, grant facilitator is kind of the catch-all term for what I did. And the way we defined it was perhaps a little more broad than at many places, but that means help you find and qualify the opportunities. This agency is looking for this, oh, I'm interested, okay, let's really look at it, see if it really is something you wanna invest time in. Um, okay, what's it gonna take to win? Well, you gotta have an economist and you gotta have a sociologist and you gotta have a nutritionist. Do you have them or do we have to go find them? Okay, who do we know? Who do we know who knows people and so on? How do you build your team? Is there enough time to do it? Um, is the sponsor and agency one we've worked with before? Or do they have crazy conditions? And you might be surprised. I mean, even federal agencies on certain contracting opportunities might have, for example, restrictions on publication or restrictions on foreign participation. You know? So if you have a foreign grad student, you're out. 
And the UC's response to that is, no, we just don't do that. Um, we are not capable of segregating our facilities in such a way that Americans work in this lab and foreign people work in that lab. It's just not, not the way we operate. So the grant facilitator will help you qualify it and help you size up what it's going to take to win, not even scientifically, but just what's this, this ball of the solution going to have to look like? And then how can we help you? Um, do you need help writing? Do you need graphics? Does the project require a management plan? Well, guess what? In my library, I have nine management plans ranging, ranging from three paragraphs to 15 pages. Let's start with one of those so you don't have to sit there from 3 to 5 a.m. writing a management plan, just pulling it out of your head. Um, are there certain buzzwords that mean something at USDA and something different at NIH? And how do we finesse that? You know, your grant facilitator will know that even if you don't. And there are times when you'll know it in the grant facilitator book. So it's a collaborative thing. But really what it comes down to is just what that word facilitator means. What's it going to take to get you across the finish line in really good shape? And sometimes I, at UCR, we also do like the budgeting and the forms and the approvals, make sure all that's getting done. Many places have a higher wall between what's called research development and research administration. The structure will work either way. Just know what the structure is and don't, you know, I say there are PIs who believe they have an unlimited license to fail and we have an unlimited obligation to rescue them when they do fail. Don't be that person because everyone will just be irritated with you. And then when you want to change the budget on the last day, they'll be at lunch when you call and not come back till after two, when, which was the deadline. So be respectful of the people who are being respectful of you. They're, they know what they're doing. They can add a lot of value. They can get you through it a lot quicker. I mean, Sonny, if I've got you putting your best into those eight pages of technical, and scientific and educational, and you let me worry about the management plan and the colors we use on the Gantt chart, um, it's going to look a lot better and read a lot better when we're done. And by the way, if you gave me that draft a week ahead, let's say, gave me a day to look at it and tear it up and ask my questions and say, will a reviewer understand this? And not quite sure what you're going for here. Um, and then you come back and say, yeah, I get what you're saying. And yeah, that could be misinterpreted. I'm not criticizing you. I'm just trying to, to help you. And you know, you, you, how many times have you and I had this conversation? <laughs> and that's really what it is. You know, we, I, one of my slides is, says, we slash because we care. And that's what a good grant facilitator will do. We'll just keep coming at you with stuff because we care, because we want you to win. Because if you win, you won't be knocking on my door again for several months because you're too busy with all that money you want. <laughs> I'll tell you, everything you said is, is so true. It's true. It's true. I have lived this. It is true. <laughs> and there is nothing better than getting feedback on your draft that is substantial, as if someone actually read it. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go ahead and say thanks to, to you for doing that for me and for everyone else at BCOE. It's so, been my pleasure. I mean, I really loved the work. Um, I'm very proud of what we did, including what you did at UCR. Um, and 
I've got to say, I'm enjoying retirement. I'm enjoying not being on deadline all the time, but um, I really did enjoy it. And, you know, when you called and asked about this, like, yeah, I still get fired up about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I want to take that last bit of fire up to talk about some uncomfortable things. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> we're growing under the hood. And so <laughs> the last couple of questions are really about PIs and how we get along with others. So I want to ask, what are the characteristics when it comes to writing grants? What are the characteristics of a PI who is easy to work with? The most important thing is if they sign up to do something, they do it. I mean, you agree on how much they're going to write, when they're going to write it, what's their role in the project, what's the money going to be. And we often have cases where the person says, yeah, yeah, put me down for it, I'm on board, and it's time for the draft and nothing comes from them. Or they send you a proposal that was unsuccessful to another agency from three years ago and say, here, just extract it from here. Um, you know, if the team is not good enough to do the proposal, then the team is not good enough to do the project. And that's a real big warning, warning flag that maybe this team can't do it. So you want people who are engaged, people who really do want to be there. Um, and I know there's lots of big name people who are, you know, people just knocking on their doors all the time. They don't actually write proposals, they accept work. But beyond a certain point, if they're overextended, you know, no one's going to believe they're really committed to your project. And the truth is they won't be committed to your project. They won't add a lot of value to it. So you really do want people who are engaged, people who understand why they're there, who feel like, okay, we're really holding hands on this. It's not like you're driving and I'm in the back seat and three weeks from now, you'll send me a draft and say, here it is. Hope you're okay with it. Um, and I've seen PIs do that. And I've seen these collaborators also just say, hey, you know, two weeks have gone by, you've told me nothing. Why am I here? So it does run both ways. You know, the PI needs to be the spark plug and make it so, but the collaborators need to feel like they really are collaborators, like they really are on the team. Okay, so being responsive and pretty much doing what you say you're gonna do. Yeah. Well, agreeing, I mean, making sure we agree on day one, you know, the day you come aboard, what is it? we're asking of you and what do you think you know here's my idea but you're the economist or you're the nutritionist am i off base here you know again what would make them say no from your perspective okay that's that's great i may have to do a part two on collaborations <laughs> from someone <laughs> I, mean, I, I won't put that on you but um so kind of like the in the in that other in this same train of thought uh, what are the characteristics of a difficult PI? What are what makes it really difficult to write proposals with PIs? Okay, I guess there's two kinds. One is someone who is so well known and well respected and well established that really they can break all the rules and still win. And that's because by the time they're writing the proposal, they've pretty much already shaken hands with the program officer and know that it's going to be. That's difficult for me as a grant facilitator because I'm like, okay, well, you know, you look at the guidelines, we have a proposal, even an unsolicited proposal has to have this and this and this. 
and you did all of those things in one paragraph at the end. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. And usually it is. It's, it makes it harder at the award stage when basically when the PI has said, here's the plan, and when the program officer has said, yeah, I want that, then some poor contracting officer has to call me and say, what is this? And then you have to go and fix all that stuff or, or strengthen it or write a better budget justification for travel or whatever it is. So that's difficult, but not truly bad, just uncomfortable. Um, the other kind, either they get the money and they wander off or they feel like, okay, summer salary is a birthright. Give me the money. By the way, I'm going to Europe for the summer, <laughs> see you in September. They just check out on you. And that's bad for you because it's more work for you. It leaves you holding the bag with the program officer who will know what's going on. I mean, they're going to see the names on the publications and everything else. And they're going to see if one of the partner institutions hasn't been spending its money, which is just as bad as, almost as bad as overspending is underspending. Because they have, you know, they got that money for a reason and that the reason is to spend it. And if it's not getting spent, then that's a problem. So you really do have to keep on your people, make it, again, make it a true collaboration. Um, I can think of two cases where we started a project with a collaborator from another institution. And after a year, the sponsoring agency came back and said, where's University of River? They said they were gonna do this. I got nothing from them. I'm like, yeah, you know, we talk to them every two months and they say, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And when it came time for the year two renewal, the sponsoring agency said, we're firing them. You're keeping the project. You're still on the hook for this work. So you better find someone who can do it, but not them. And they can do that. And they were right to do that in that case. So it's, you know, yeah, I, I joke, the only thing worse than losing is winning. Because um, once you've won, you have to do all that stuff you promised. Um, and you don't control it all. <laughs> you've got collaborators and you've got university rules that keep changing and reimbursement rates and salary rates went up and tuition rates went up. So how does my budget work anymore? And a million variables. But obviously the system works or none of us would be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And somehow or another, we have all figured out how to do this. <laughs> yep. Um, many times over um, with, and that's because we don't give up. Those of us who are in this, in academia, we we have a, a thirst for for pain. <laughs> yeah. well, but I mean, as ugly as the system can be, it does work. I mean, the innovations happen. The grad students get trained. Science gets better at solving our problems, and yeah, maybe the problems grow faster than the solutions sometimes, but. You know, we're fighting back and if this is how we choose to do it. It's how we choose to do it. And it doesn't always get the right answer, but it gets enough right answers. So yeah, it can work. It's painful, but it can work. I mean, if it were easy, everyone would do it. Oh, well, absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of our time with you, Mitch. And I will say I learned some things today. You know, I, as I expected, you know. <laughs> and, you know this stuff. Oh, there's always more. Some things, some things I didn't know. So 
So uh, with that, I just want to thank you. And if you have any uh, parting words for young PIs or mid-career PIs that you think would help them. Oh, I guess the only thing, you know, I, I kind of come back to some stock phrases every so often. It's just a hazard of being in this business so long. But I tell people, if you win everything you go for, it just means you're aiming too low. Not winning is part of the process. Um, you're going to learn things from the successes. You're going to learn things from the failures. Go back again and try the different combinations till they work. But it is hard, but it takes some persistence. It's easy to get discouraged. But if you got the right idea and you got the right approach, it's all, everyone can grow up to be Sunny Ivy. And, and that's a pretty proud thing, pretty, something to be pretty proud of. Uh, he's being very kind, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, thank you all for listening. And this has been episode three of Under the Hood.